All right, folks, let's dive in. Uh, we're going to go to Matthew chapter number two, if you would, please. We were in Matthew chapter one last week, and uh, we've been chasing down this idea of Merry Christmas, question mark. And uh, can we have true joy in the season of Christmas? And if so, then how? And uh, we've been seeking after following different Christmas stories and uh, in the Bible, of course, and different Christmas characters, learning about how joy and merriment, and we define, the Bible defines merriment as cheerful encouragement. How is it that in a season of bleakness and hopelessness, joy and merriment can break through in those extremely difficult situations? And the first Christmas story isn't quite as neat and calm and quiet as maybe we would see in a nativity display or even in some of the movies that we watch during the holiday seasons. Uh, it probably wasn't a very silent night in a stable full of animals. I think we can kind of put that one to rest if you just realize where the, uh, the infant Christ was born and what he was laid in. It certainly wasn't a calm and all quiet night. Uh, we know from the stories that we've tracked over the last few weeks uh, that there was conflict and uh, there was taxation and there was uh, disappointment and unmet expectations. There was dreams that had to die in both Mary and in Joseph, our two previous character studies of the last two weeks. And uh, there was trust that was at least momentarily shattered uh, between Joseph and Mary as we, we read last week. And yet in the midst of this God-level interruption in their lives, we have seen great examples in this young couple that they managed to find joy even when all of the script was essentially just wadded up and thrown out and completely rewritten by the angels and the Lord himself. And they managed to find joy and they managed to find peace because of who was coming into the world. As the angel told Joseph that he was coming, uh, that a child was coming to save his people from their sins. And so this Christmas, we're chasing after, we're seeking after those secrets to joy. And uh, if you were with us two weeks ago, we learned from Mary that in order to find joy in the Christmas season, not that kind of pretend joy that the world kind of paints on their face for this season, but that real godly joy that Mary had, uh, Mary taught us the secret of surrender. That just yielding your yourself to the Lord's will in this season and in every other season of life is the only way you're ever going to find joy because his ways are not our ways. And sometimes we make plans and God comes in and completely alters those plans. Now, sometimes in his grace, he allows us to walk through and man, he puts a desire in our heart and he grants that desire and we get to walk in a path that we thought, hey, we're going to do this and God lets us do it. But then if you know, if you follow Jesus for any amount of time, there are other seasons where you're fully convinced that this is what life's going to be like, and this is the plan, and this is my five-year plan, and this is what's going to happen, and the Holy Spirit comes, and man, he just rewrites it and re-alters it and changes things around, and, and maybe sometimes it's with good circumstances, and other times he'll use difficult circumstances, but we learn from Mary our first secret of the Christmas season is found in surrender, just letting God do what God wants to, and we learn from Mary that the angel came and said, hey, this is who you're going to be, and Mary said, okay, this is who I am. And then last week, we learned from Joseph. We saw Joseph's everyday obedience, just in the everyday. You're even going to see it in the story again. Every time we intersect with Joseph, he's just doing the right thing. He's doing what God clearly revealed to him. He's doing what God has commanded in the Old Testament, in the law. He's doing what the angel comes and tells him to do. Hey, take her to wife. And, and then uh, even in our story today, take your wife and that child and, and take them down to Egypt. And every time we intersect with Joseph, he is everyday obedient. And that was a secret we learned from Joseph. 
Just do what God has called you to do. If you're going to find joy in the bleakness of life, you're going to find it in obedience to the Lord. And he set before you, as Deuteronomy says, a blessing and a curse, and a blessing if you obey, and a curse if you don't obey. And so this week, we're going to shadow a completely different set of characters. And I am, I'm super geeked about this one. I, I was telling the, the fellas this week, man, it was the, the, the text you're going to get to. I could almost just set a, sit, sit down and just read it to you. Uh, there's so much in it uh, in Matthew chapter number two. We're going to shadow a completely different group of people whose stories, there's two different groups. There's one man and then there's a group of guys whose stories intersect to teach us a major truth about kingdom living. Now, I know that's kind of a buzzy word and maybe you don't fully understand it. It's a major theme throughout the Bible. Uh, everyone lives under a kingdom. It's an inescapable reality of the human condition. We all live under some kind of kingdom. We all willingly surrender and belong and draw identity from some kind of kingdom. We identify with something bigger than ourselves. We might not call them kingdoms, but the Bible certainly would. Or the Bible might even use the word idol. Think about this. Any kingdom or any king that you and I have is simply that which sits in the seat that Jesus belongs in. We identify with it. We draw our identity from it. And maybe it's the kingdom of business. And you wouldn't call that a kingdom, but God would. You're drawing your identity and your purpose and your pursuit. And you wake up every day to build a business. God would call that a kingdom. Maybe if you're a young person, and maybe sometimes some of the older folks in here, maybe your kingdom is your, your athletic you know, career, and you're 16, 17, and you're planning on going pro, and every day you wake up to serve, not Jesus, but some sport. More often than not, this would be our kingdom, the kingdom of self. The kingdom of self-discovery, self-advancement, self-pleasure. We, we have all these desires to do what we want to do. And our kingdom and our king would most aptly be called us. Some, maybe even in the room tonight or this morning, your kingdom is some politician and some political structure. And this is what, man, this is where the hope is. And this is who I am. And, you know, all my bumper stickers and all my social media is all about this. And that's the kingdom you're living for. <clears throat> and the fact of the matter is, this is just... This has been true since the very beginning. Before the fall, there was a kingdom whose king was God and man dwelt with him. And the Bible defined it as he is their God and they are his people and Adam and Eve. They're in this beautiful kingdom with their creator, their king, God. And in that kingdom, this is important and you'll recognize this word, in that kingdom, God gave them this beautiful gift called dominion. That man was supposed to go out and conquer the world. That man was supposed to go out and, and subdue the animals and, and climb the mountains and bring it under themselves and exercise authority and dominion over it, which was the beautiful gift until the fall. And when the fall came, and you'll recognize some of this from a previous sermon we preached a couple weeks ago, when the fall came in, dominion began to be perverted. Dominion began to be broken. And man started to exercise dominion over each other. Man started to bring not, not creation and nature under themselves to bring it back to God. Men started bringing other men and other women under themselves, not for the glory of God, but the glory of themselves, and started abusing dominion over men. Cain is a great and primary example of that. Cain exercising authority over his brother and taking his life because he wanted it to be about himself. 
Well, the apple didn't fall far from the tree. In Genesis chapter number four, Cain has a grandson named Lamech. And Lamech is the first man to take multiple wives to himself. And when he takes these wives to himself, you can read the story sometime later, he brags to these women as almost to to subjugate them further about a man that he had killed and and how God was going to protect him because he protected Cain. And he's just building his own kingdom using dominion. Man has not stopped trying to be king since the garden. Man has not stopped trying to build kingdoms for their glory and not his since the garden. The tower built in Babel is a great example of man's desire to be on top. Babylon, the kingdom under Nebuchadnezzar, is an archetype of that kind of dominion and power and kingship and authority that was perverted from what God gave us in the garden. What he gave us in the garden was supposed to be beautiful, but man has so perverted it for their own purposes. Men, has been using, men have been using and abusing dominion, the dominion principle to build their kingdoms from the beginning. But then, <clears throat> all at once, Christ, the true king, stepped into earth in the Christmas story. And his very presence assaulted the power structure of his day. Think about it. It's all about authority when Jesus steps on the scene. The Pharisees are offended, not because he can do these things. They can't question whether or not he can raise the dead. They saw it happen. But you know what they asked him about? By what authority do you do these things? How come you have authority that we don't have? Pilate was threatened by the authority. Caesar himself threatened by the authority of Jesus. But listen to me, that, 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 that assault to man's dominion didn't just happen in his death. It happened at his birth. This child was born the clear king of Israel. David's true son had finally stepped into humanity and the prophecy very clearly asserted that this child is to be the king over Israel forever. But not just over Israel, but over the entire world. Which look up here, Christian, that's amazing. Praise God, the king has come, right? That's why we celebrate uh, Christmas. That's why the shepherds ran into town. That's why the baby leapt in his mother's womb. That's why Mary sang and Joseph surrendered because the king has come. come. And that's amazing unless you're already seated on a throne you have no intention of stepping down from. The king coming into humanity is a hallelujah moment for everyone who says like, yeah, I need a king and I'll give you my kingdom. But if you're seated on the throne and you won't surrender it, if you're unwilling to move and you're unwilling to fold up your own kingdom to make way for his kingdom, well, there's a major conflict coming, which is exactly the case with the incarnation of Jesus. The creator ruler steps into humanity. And we either make room for him, listen, or we go to war with him. And that's the exact responsibility and response you and I are faced with in in, in our day and age today. We may not be King Herod, but we're king over everything when he shows up in our life. I remember when he showed up in my life in 2001, and he stepped in and said, hey, either I get to be king or you do. And he saved me. And then every day since, we've had the same conversation. Either I get to be king or you do. And we're faced with the same responsibility to abdicate our thrones to let him sit on the throne of our life. And if we are unwilling to do that, then here's what we do. We go to war with them. And that's what we're going to study this morning in our text. We're going to see two different groups of nobility. You could certainly say royalty on one half and maybe on the other group as well. But these stories intersect at the same exact impasse. Do we let him be king or do we go to war with him? And we're going to find in the same text two different groups 
who respond in two very equal but opposite directions. One goes to war and one goes to worship. And that's a decision we get to face every day of our life. We're going to go ahead and pray, and then we're going to dive into our text. Father, guide us today. As we unpack this text, I pray that your spirit would be upon us. I pray, Father, that we would lean into the word in a special way and that you would illuminate certain truths to us. And, Father, that you would apply certain areas to our own hearts and lives where maybe I'm not even speaking about it, but your Holy Spirit is speaking about it in their hearts. And, uh, Father, we trust that you're going to do the work of the word. We trust that you're going to speak to our hearts. We trust that the word of God is going to be open and that it's going to be preached. I pray that you'd help me to do faithful uh, uh, service to the preaching of the word, but that at the same time, each and every one of us in our seats would take a spiritual responsibility of, of gleaning for our own lives and our own selves. Father, guide us. We're all going to be faced with this decision. Do we go to war or do we go to worship? And I pray, God, in the example that you recorded for us in the story of Herod and the wise men, Lord, two very equal but opposite reactions to the incarnation of the king of the universe. And, Lord, we're going to find ourselves somewhere in that scale. We're either going to go to war with you or we're going to come worship and surrender to you. And I pray that, Lord, as we learn this story and read this story, that your spirit would do a work inside of each of us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want you to hold on to the big ideas as we're going to jump in in just a second. The big ideas of kingdoms, that we all have kings and we all have kingdoms. Uh, The idea of exercising dominion over people and building our own kingdoms. And then at the moment that true king arrives, there's a decision to be made. We're going to see that in our text this morning. Would you go to Matthew chapter 2, verse number 1? We're going to pick up. We're going to walk through it. We're going to learn two big truths and one final secret. And then we're going to go home and eat gingerbread cookies, okay? So Matthew chapter number 2, verse number 1 says this. Now when Jesus was born... In Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod, read the next two words, the king, that matters. Behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem. Immediately here in verse number one, we're introduced to both of our characters. Uh, Really, one is an individual, and then one is a group of characters. We don't know how many wise men came. Uh, Oftentimes, it's depicted as three because of the three gifts, but we don't know how many came. It could have been two. It could have been 50. We have no idea how many people came. But here, we meet these characters, and the first one we look at, we're going to look at this morning, is Herod. Herod in the Bible is a common name. As you intersect with the New Testament, the entire New Testament, not just the beginning story of Christ's incarnation, but as you intersect with the entire New Testament, you're going to bump into a bunch of guys named Herod. And they're not all the same guy. Let me kind of teach you some things about this. The Herodian family was a dynasty of Jewish, kind of Jewish, rulers. They were ruling the land of Israel. They, uh, Herod here, this first guy, he, he's half Edomite and half Jewish, so really has no legal law, according to the Bible, according to the Old Testament, had no claim to the throne. He was appointed under Rome. Rome had appointed his father to be the king in, in Israel, and at his father's death, then appoints Herod. Well, we would know, and, and please, this title goes with air quotes, Herod the Great. He's only known as Herod the Great, not because he's a a great guy, but he accomplished a whole ton of things. But as you read the New Testament, you're going to bump into Herod. There, there are a bunch of biblical Herods. Herod kills John the Baptist. Well, that's not this Herod. That's not Herod the Great. That's Herod Antipas, and that's Herod the Great's son. You're going to bump into the same Herod Antipas that Jesus stood before, where Herod says, I find no fault in him. That's the son of the man in Matthew chapter number two. There's another Herod in the, in the book of Acts that kills James and tries to kill 
Peter. That's Herod Agrippa. That's the grandson of Herod the Great. And then the final Herod you're going to bump into is in the book of Acts when Paul at Caesarea Maritime stands before Agrippa the second and almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Well, that's the great grandson of Herod the Great. And so these are a bunch of kings and they're all bad guys and they all have negative uh, kind of impacts on the story of the Bible. But here in Matthew chapter number one, at the birth of Christ, this is the very first Herod. This is Herod the Great, a prolific builder. In fact, much of the setting of the New Testament is going to be, it's going to be take place on the stage, if you will, that Herod built. Uh, Herod the Great is the one who remodeled the temple, built the temple mount that still stands today. Uh, a prolific builder built uh, Caesarea Maritime where Paul stood before the grandson of Herod, uh, Agrippa II. He built so many different things. He built Masada and the, uh, the different Herodian temples and, and houses, just a prolific builder in his day. Herod the Great had 10 wives and a bunch of different children. Herod killed some of his wives, killed two of his sons, killed his mother-in-law, which, you know, we'll give him maybe not a pass on that, but killed his mother-in-law. Caesar Augustus once said this of Herod, Herod the Great, it's safer to be his dog than his son because he was such a bloody man. And this is the man who is exercising human dominion over all of Israel At the moment, the magnificent king of the universe steps into humanity. And this arrival is good news. Unless you're seated on the throne, you won't give up. Remember, let's look at verse number, the end of verse number one. There's another set of people in this story. It says, behold, there came wise men from the east of Jerusalem. And this is really the focus of the first couple verses of this particular group. There's a second set of wise men who had come from the east. They'd seen a star and we don't fully understand the whole star situation, but they came from the east. And I really wish I had time to unpack this, but I don't. Uh, The country to the immediate east of Israel in Jesus' day would be the kingdom that we might recognize as the kingdom of Persia. In today's world, it would be the kingdom of Iran, but in the days of Daniel and Isaiah, it would have been the kingdom of Babylon. These men have come from the east, but but why have they come from the east? Look at verse number two, saying, where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to, notice what their intent is, worship him. Sadly, we don't have time to fully unpack how these guys even knew to come. Uh, in fact, I would encourage you to go back last year to Christmas time in the Sunday evening service. We preached a series called Connecting the Dots, and we talked about these wise men and how they would have even known to come. And it, go, it goes all the way back to the chief magi uh, appointed by Babylon, appointed by Nebuchadnezzar. The chief uh, magi was a man named Daniel. And in Daniel chapter number nine, the chief magi over all of Babylon made a prophecy that in 490 years from this date that he wrote it, there would come a king in Israel who would be cut off to make an end of all sin and he would reign forever. Well, 400 and maybe 60 years later, these same magi of the same country read the prophecy, see the star, say, it's time to go. He must be born. Let us go and worship him. And here's what they do. At least temporarily, they leave behind their kingdoms. They leave behind their kings. And they come 750 miles in search of a nearly 500-year-old prophecy. And they figure, hey, he's born. He's king. He must have been born in the the, uh, palace. Let's go to the palace and inquire, where's the king? And sure enough, they show up. And they ask in the palace, all right, where is he? 
Surely he's here. But notice the conversation that unfolds. Verse 3. When Herod the king had heard these things, would you read the next three words out loud? He was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Everybody's troubled. But, But let me ask you, why are they troubled? The wise men aren't troubled. The wise men are actually rather excited. They've brought gifts. They've come to worship. They've been waiting for him. They've been tracking a prophecy for 500 years in a pagan land. They saw the star. It must be time. They've been traveling for weeks. They're not troubled. But Herod and all in Jerusalem are troubled. But why? And that brings us to our first of two reactions to the kingship of Jesus. Number one, Herod is troubled. The answer to why, Herod is troubled because the kingship of Jesus threatens his own kingdom. Herod's not willing to get off the throne. Now put yourself in Herod's shoes. How strange this whole situation would have been. This royal stately entourage shows up. They've got this prophecy from an ancient manuscript. And uh, you send to your scribes and say, see if these guys are crazy. Figure out if this is actually true. And your men come back and it's corroborated. And there's actually a city and there's actually a prophecy. And you're actually the king. But now the prophecy says that this particular time a king's going to come. And you're the king. And this is only troubling if you plan on holding on to your kingdom. Because of this man's broken relationship with dominion, this happens, look, across society. This is not just a Herod problem. This happens all the time in not just the New Testament, but in our life as well. The Pharisees didn't want to give up their kingdom. That's why they were threatened by Jesus. Herod didn't want to give up his kingdom. That's why they're threatened by Jesus. This didn't just happen in the authority structures during Christ's life, but it happens every single day around us. It happens all around us. We've got lawmakers and tyrants and kings who want to keep their own kingdom and the the threat of Christianity or the threat of the Bible is something that they don't want and they want to extinguish it. We've seen it throughout history. Why? Because man has a broken relationship with dominion. Man has a desire to subjugate, not for God's glory, but for their own glory. And the kingship of Jesus is a threat to every king on any throne and not just the ones in the White House, but the ones at my house and the ones at your house. This isn't just tyrants that are threatened. I hate to say it, like I said, sometimes his own people can be threatened by his lordship. Sometimes we don't want to get off the throne. Sometimes we don't want to surrender. Sometimes we struggle to let him be lord and ruler over our own lives. We think that our kingdoms belong to us. Hey, that's my money, and those are my kids, and that's my future, and my retirement, and my castle. That's my life. I built it. It's mine. I deserve it. And when Christ steps into your life, whether at the moment of salvation or after salvation, and says, hey, that kingdom's mine too. Well, are we going to be troubled? Or are we coming to worship? So again, it's easy to point the finger at Herod because he doesn't want to get off the throne. But there's some very real times where you and I don't want to get off the throne. And we're faced with the same choice Herod was. Do I go to war or have I come to worship? Let's watch it unfold. Look at verse number four. And when he, Herod, had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. Now, this is really important, and this is reminiscent of our day and age. Herod's going to put on this mask, this pretension, where he says, oh, yeah, I want to I worship Jesus too. Hey, go figure out where he's born. But eventually the mask is going to come off, and we've talked about that. At Christmas time, people pretend. 
They enjoy the Christmas songs, even the songs with theology. Oh yeah, we love Christmas. We want to worship. But if the Lord Jesus were to step into the world today, they'd go to war with him. They wouldn't worship him. But again, I'm not so much worried about them as much as I am about us. So this is not a pure ask. He hasn't saying, hey, go, go find him so I could worship him. He's going to say that. But there's obviously an ulterior motive. Keep reading verse five. <clears throat> and they said unto him in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. And thou Bethlehem, and here's the prophecy out of Micah 5, 2. And thou Bethlehem in the land of Judah are not the least among the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come a governor and that shall be ruler, that shall rule my people Israel. So the scribes go back and they verify exactly what this entourage of nobility, these magi, these wise men have shown up. Uh, and again, this, this, they, they corroborate the story. So now, now, man, Herod's got the temperature rising. Can I ask you a question? This has, to be, this has to be observed. Why didn't everybody else know? Why is it a group of, of pagan astrologers from a pagan country, why is it that they have been tracking this prophecy? Why is it that they knew he was coming and then they show up in country, they go to the palace expecting the child to be there and no one has any idea? you imagine being those magi? Like, well, did we get it wrong? <laughs> like, we showed up and nobody knew. And then they go back and they look at it and they're like, oh, hey, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, in Bethlehem, Epertod, yeah. There's a prophecy in Micah that says that he would be born. But again, how thrown off would you be if you're the Magi? But they get their answer, and then they get questioned. Notice what happens, verse 7. Then Herod, when he had privately called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And I believe that has to do with Herod trying to figure out how far behind the ball he is. He just found out about it. How long ago did you guys know about this? How long has this been going on? Like, like, when did this start? He's trying to catch himself up. Verse 8, and he sent them to Bethlehem. Isn't that funny when people treat other people like they work for them? These people don't belong to his kingdom. He has no jurisdiction over them. And he says, hey, oh, yeah, you guys are going to go, and you're going you're to run an errand for me. And notice what he says, and said, go and search diligently for the young child. And when ye have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. Herod is lying through his teeth. Go find them, please. And then, you know what? Come back and, and let me know where he is. I'd really love to come and worship him. And for those who know the rest of the story, which we'll read in a moment, Herod has no intention of worshiping him. He has every intention of going to war with this child. In fact, when, he, when the, the, uh, the, the wise men are going to be warned of God in a dream, they're going to go home another way. They're not coming back to Herod. Herod finds out about it. He's angry. And he orders the slaughter of every child to and under in the region. Herod has no intention of, war of worshiping him. Herod serves as an uncomfortable close-up of the human heart, unwilling to relinquish their thrones to the true king. There's no joy to be had for the, these kind of people at the arrival of Christ and at Christmas. And that's why, like I said, they pretend to be excited, just like Herod did. They play the part uh, of worshipers of Christ, and they'll sing the music in the, in the shoe store while they're shopping, and they'll, they'll recognize the songs, they'll want to be a part of it. And yeah, we want to worship, but the fact of the matter is, when confronted, with his lordship and his authority, the true heart toward the Christ child comes out. Their true heart is laid bare. Humanity doesn't want to worship Jesus. They want to go to war with him. They want to remove him from Christmas if they can. They want to replace him with all kinds of different, you know, stories and figures and, and cartoon characters. And they don't want Jesus to be anywhere in the story of Christmas, just like Herod. Why though? 
because they won't get off the throne. They won't surrender back their dominion. Herod is not going to let it happen. But our text will come back to Herod. But for now, let's see the equal and opposite reaction of the wise men. Look at verse 9. Here's the best response toward the kingship of Jesus. And when they had heard the king, they departed. And lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. Now, I don't know how that star worked. I don't know. It obviously was mobile of some degree. I don't know if even science can explain it. I don't know if it's just an angel in heaven. We'll get to watch it or see it or ask somebody. What was the star about? But right now, we don't know. All we know is as they leave that palace, that star positions itself over the eastern side of Jerusalem, just across the valley where Bethlehem is. You can see the cities from each other. The hill country is just out there. And sure enough, they leave the palace and the star moves that way. And they follow it. Verse number 10. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. I don't know, did it disappear for a while and they decided to go to the palace? It had led them here, but now all of a sudden, man, they see it and they're excited. They're exceeding great joy. What an opposite response to, to Herod's troubled. Herod is troubled. They are exceedingly joyful. What a contradiction of reactions to the kingship of Jesus. Look at verse 11. And when they were coming to the house... Again, this isn't the manger scene. They're living at a house at this point, though still in Bethlehem. They saw the young child with his mother. I don't miss this. See the hearts of these men toward this infant king. And fell down and, what's the word? Worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So we see the secondary reaction to the kingship of Jesus. The first one is troubled. He's threatened. Herod won't get off his throne. He's going to go to war with Jesus. But then we see these wise men, and boy, are they wise. They have come. They've left their own kingdoms, and they've come all the way to Bethlehem so they could fall down with open hands and worship the true king. What you're seeing is the difference of human hearts. One man makes it his mission to destroy the threat to his tiny little kingdom, while the other set of men make it their mission to surrender themselves and their treasure to the worship of the true king and the lasting kingdom. Now, again, I got to ask, I wonder which ones we are this morning. Are we living and defending and building a castle in the sand like Herod, or are we laying down our treasure and our life and our autonomy at the feet of the one true king? Perhaps you're here today and you are not saved. You have not come to Jesus for the salvation of your soul. Yes, accepting Christ is going to flatten your kingdom. He's going to change everything about you. He is going to rewrite your story. He's going to give you a different identity. Everything you thought you were, you won't end up being. He will redraft everything about you and it will cost you your kingdom. But trust me, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Uh, because all of your castles are built in sand. Everything your life outside of Christ can accomplish, it's just a castle in the sand. And every castle crumbles. Every uh, affiliation doesn't last. Everything you've ever built will be swept away. Just read the book of Ecclesiastes. Join us on Wednesday night. One event happened to them all. Listen, Jesus has come to invite you back into the one true kingdom. That's where it all goes back to. Uh, And again, you can stay and hold on to your own kingdom. And this is my life. And I get to do what I want. And I want to follow my own path. And I want nothing to do with Jesus. Well, you can be Herod. But the fact of the matter is one event happens to them all. 
Listen, you only have two choices when it comes to Jesus assaulting your life. And yeah, I'm talking about salvation. You can either surrender or you can fight him. Christians, you're here today and you are saved. Same situation you and I are presented to every single day. We either let him come and take back all of our autonomy, all of our dominion, all of our authority, all of our ways, all of our desires, all of our passions. We either let him be king or we lock him out just like Herod. Listen, our text is going to bring us back to Herod, a petty king who chose to go to war with the infant Christ in his desire to build a castle in the sand. I want you to look at verse number 12 in just a second. The life of Herod has a powerful warning to us because of how it ends. Let's, let's look at what verse number 12 says. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. Did you notice that the sandcastle king cannot even stop the God of heaven? Have a seat, my friend. Cannot even stop the God of heaven from saving the infant Jesus. He, he hasn't even disclosed that he desires to kill the Christ child. And the Bible tells us that God warns the, the, the wise men to go a different way. Don't go back to Herod. He demanded that they go and demanded that they return. And yet God steps in and rewrites the circumstances. Here's, what, here's, what, here's the illustration. Herod's got his castle in the sand, but he can't stop the waves. Herod's building and defending his own little kingdom, but he is powerless against the God of the universe. He wants that child dead, but God is interceding. Let's keep reading. It says, and when they were departed, the wise men, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, arise and take the young child and his mother and flee into Egypt and be thou there until I bring thee word for Herod will seek the, uh, the young child to destroy him. Again, Herod hasn't even disclosed the desire of his heart to kill this child yet, but God is interceding. So again, you can defend your castle in the sand, but not against God. Keep reading. And when he, Joseph, arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt. Another great example of just Joseph's integrity, the kind of man he was. Let's keep reading verse 15. We'll travel a little bit in the text. And was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet saying, out of Egypt have I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceedingly wroth and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem in all the coasts thereof from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. So it's been two years. And they, uh, then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy or Jeremiah, the prophet saying, in Ramah was there a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted because they were not. So Herod sets out to destroy the Christ child, but Christ is in Egypt with his mother and his father. And so he sets out and he destroys all of the children to and under. But you need to read with me the next sentence up to the comma out loud. Verse number 19, read out loud to the comma, please. But when Herod was, but when Herod was dead, Herod died. Herod lost. Herod is no longer king. And the illustration that Herod gives us is those that go to war with Jesus lose. Unequivocally. Keep reading. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared, appeareth in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother and go into the land of Israel, for they are dead which sought the young child's life. I came across this poem this week in my study. I'll just read you the whole thing. Uh, the, the title of it is that all Herods die. Let me read it for you. We think of him, Jesus, as safe beneath the steeple or cozy in a crib beside the font. But he is with the million displaced people on the long road of weariness and want. 
For even as we sing our final carol, his family is up and on that road, fleeing the wrath of someone else's quarrel, glancing behind and shouldering their load. Whilst Herod rages still from his dark tower, Christ clings to Mary, fingers tightly curled. The lambs were slaughtered by men of power, and death squads spread their curse across the world. But every Herod dies and comes alone to stand before the lamb upon his throne. Everyone who goes to war with Jesus loses. Every castle crumbles. Every state capital will be destroyed. Every president who holds office will bow before Jesus. All kings bow. Psalm 72, 11, Yea, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. All knees bow. Every tongue confesses. Every Herod dies. And after this, the judgment before the God of the universe. So what a foolish way of living to go to war with the one true king. So as to preserve a sandcastle, you can't even protect. Listen, the only response you and I should have isn't being threatened, isn't being troubled, but it is surrendering and getting off our throne with open hands to worship him, surrendering our possessions and our positions to the one true king. And that's the secret we learn this week. To let him be king. It is the only place that you and I will ever truly find joy. When we allow the king who came to earth to be king in our own lives. And perhaps you're here today and you need to surrender. Maybe it is in terms of salvation. Like I said, you're struggling with that. You've never come to Christ for salvation. You're trusting in your own works. You're trusting in your own path. You're building your own castle. You're accomplishing your own works. And in order for you to be saved, yeah, you got to let go of that. You got to turn to Christ and say, Lord, you are my only source of salvation. You are my only hope of a resurrection. You are my only way of redemption. And yes, that's going to require leaving behind a sandcastle, but man, you're joining a kingdom that will never end. You're surrendering to worship a king who will forever reign and all Herods will be put down and all crowns and all authority and all dominion will be brought under him. So what a fool's errand to be Herod. What a foolish way to live life than to be threatened by him. And I get it. We're all threatened to a degree if we aren't willing to get off the throne. But the arrival of the Christ child, the arrival of the one true king only brings worship and exceeding great joy as the wise men had when we are willing to surrender ourselves, willing to let go of what we have, what we're holding so that he might reign in our lives. Listen, no dominion of man is safe. But here's the thing. You don't have to defend it against him. You can have that exceeding great joy. That is good tidings of great joy that shall be to all people. For unto us is born a savior, that king, he's come. So none of us have to be king anymore. And if your heart desires to be king, you're going to have a hard time with him. But if your heart desires to worship him like the wise men, man, you're in good company. Listen, here's the secret for this week. Step off the throne. Let him be in charge. Let him take your health uh, and do what he wants with it. Let him take your finances and do what he wants with it. Let him take your relationships and do what he wants with it. Let him take your sin and do what he wants with it. Let him be king. It's who he is and all Herods die. Let's pray.